This evening's Bible reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning. And I have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of God. My name is Adam. If uh, we haven't met, I'm part of the team here and it's great to have you with us tonight. Tonight we are in week three of our series called Reign of the King. We're on a journey through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel as we explore the story of King David. Now as I've told you a couple of times, the reason that we're doing this series is because we believe the Bible is God's word to us, that the whole Bible is for our good and our instruction, and that the Bible is telling us one big story. It's not kind of a random collection of inspirational sayings. It's not disconnected moral lessons. It's one big story. The story of God's plan to save the world through Jesus. And 2 Samuel is an incredibly important part of that story. 
In fact, tonight we are looking at what is not only one of the most important chapters in the book of 2 Samuel, we're looking at what is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. In the the landscape of Scripture, this is like a mountain peak. But maybe after the the reading, if you were paying attention, uh, after all the action that we've had in the last six chapters and the last couple of weeks, you might notice that not a lot happens in this chapter. There's no assassinations like we've had in the last couple of weeks. There's no beheadings. There's no betrayal. There's no one getting shanked. There's just a whole lot of talking. And so maybe you're wondering, well, what's the big deal? Why does this chapter matter so much? Well, let me explain it to you this way. There was a book that was released a number of years ago. It was called In Our Time. And it was basically a catalogue of historic speeches that have influenced our world. In fact, the subtitle of the book is The Speeches That Shaped the Modern World. It's got speeches by uh, leaders like Nelson Mandela, Barack Obama, Margaret Thatcher, and Winston Churchill. Now, Churchill, of course, was the Prime Minister of Great Britain during the 1940s, and he kind of rallied the nation of Great Britain to wage war against Nazi Germany. And he said in a speech to, to Parliament, he said, you ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. Incredibly inspirational speech. It's also got, of course, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I have a dream. Many speeches from many leaders that have influenced our world. Well, this speech in 2 Samuel, it not only deserves to be in that book, It really deserves to be in a book on its own. And the subtitle of this book would be a speech that has shaped our world, that continues to shape our world, and that will shape our future as well. Because in this speech in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it is one of the key moments in the unfolding story of God's plan to save the world. I mean, this speech contains some of the key promises about God's plan for us and for our world. Now, of course, the the Bible has a number of key moments where God gives some key promises about his plan to save the world. They're also known as covenant, covenants. Now, a covenant is simply the word for a solemn or a binding promise. And these covenants in the Bible are like the backbone of the story. So, for example... In Genesis chapter 9, God makes a covenant with Noah to never again destroy the world. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham to redeem the whole world through his family line. And of course, from the family line of Abraham comes the nation of Israel. Then in Exodus 19, God makes the promise to Moses to exalt Israel as his special people if they will obey his law. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes the promise to David that there will be a king who will come from his line who will be far greater than him. These are some of the key moments in the Old Testament because these are the key promises about God's plan to save the world. And they all lead up to the words that we read 
on the very first page, the very first paragraph of the New Testament. We read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, have you ever read that before in your New Testament and wondered, what's that about? Who's David and, and how can Jesus be a son of two people? Now, the point that this author is making is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. These promises that were made to Abraham and to David, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan to save the world. And this is why 2 Samuel chapter 7 is such an important chapter of the Bible. It is essential for us if we want to understand the identity and the mission of Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't just appear in human history randomly. He flows out of, he comes from the story of Israel and the story of God's interaction with Israel. And this chapter is so essential for us to understand the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, how God is at work in the world, and how we can come to know God. An incredibly important chapter. Now maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're a guest with us tonight, and we're so glad that you're here. Maybe you're thinking, well, this doesn't sound like it has a lot to say for my life. I mean, I don't really accept the authority of the Bible, this doesn't really sound like it's relevant to me. I would simply invite you to consider, what if it's true? What if the story that the Bible is telling us of the king that was promised, the king that has come, and the king that will come again, what if that story is true? What if our longings for justice to be done, for there to be peace, our longing for goodness, what if those longings can be found and met in Jesus. If Jesus really is God's king, then this is incredibly confronting news, but it's also incredibly good news. And that's what I hope and pray that we'll see tonight as we unpack this chapter together. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to unpack this chapter together and we'll see that it unfolds in three main sections. What we see in verses 1 to 3 is David's good idea. Then verses 4 to 17, God's greater promise. And then finally, verses 18 to 29, our glad response. So let's begin with verses 1 to 3, David's good idea. Now the chapter opens with David reclining in his palace. He's on the back porch with Nathan. Now, Nathan was the prophet of Israel, kind of like the pastor of Israel. And they're there, relaxing, reclining, surveying the kingdom. I like to imagine that they might have had a, a whiskey and a pipe, and they're just relaxing, looking over the kingdom, and then David's eyes fall on a tent. And this tent was where the Ark of God was being kept. Now, we saw last week that the Ark of God was a, a wooden box that symbolized the presence of God. It held the Ten Commandments and other important objects. And, and David sees this tent that houses the Ark of God, and he begins to feel a little bit uneasy. He looks at the simplicity of the tent, God's house, and then he looks at the luxury of his palace, his house. And so he says to Nathan in verse 2, Here I am. Living in a house of cedar, really expensive timber, while the ark of God remains in a tent. 
Now, David doesn't really verbalize any particular plan at this moment, but it's obvious that he wants to build something spectacular to house the Ark of God. And Nathan responds like most pastors would in this situation. When someone with significant resources says they want to do something for the kingdom of God, what does Nathan say? Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is with you. Go for it, brother. Sounds great. Now, I've got to admit, I probably would have said something similar to what Nathan said. But, I mean, the situation doesn't seem right, does it? The ark of God languishing in a tent and David living it up in a palace. This is why David's idea seems like a good one. And this is why God's response to David's idea is so surprising. You see, David, uh, God rather, effectively says no or not yet to David's good idea. Now let me just ask you, has God ever said no to you? Maybe you've had a desire to, to do something for God, maybe something even really good, but that door remains shut. And you don't know why. What we learn in this story is that God has his reasons. Now, it might be that God is saying no here to David because he wants David to learn to depend on him, to rely on him. I like what one commentator, Eugene Peterson, says. He says, I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David riding the crest of great acclaim, having decisively defeated his opposition, uniting God's people, ascending to the throne, he was heavy with success. And he'd begun to think, listen to this, that he could do God a favor. Sometimes God says no to our desires and our, our ideas so that we might rely on him and depend on him. Sometimes God says no to our, our dreams and our desires because he has something greater in mind. And this is what we see in the next section of the story. Because in response to David's good idea, God makes David a greater promise. David wants to build God a house, a temple. But God says in response to David, listen to what he says, verses 11 to 13. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, there's a play on words happening here because David wants to build a house for God, a physical temple. But God says, no, 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 David, I will build a house for you as in a dynasty, a lineage of kings. Now, this is an incredible promise. God says to David, I will give you a king from your line who will reign over all people and will reign forever. Think about that. What an incredible promise. The biggest promise I've ever made was to my wife, to be faithful to her as long as God gives me breath, which might be 30, 40, 50 years, you don't, I don't know. But this promise that God makes, it is forever. 
to establish a king for all eternity. And so the million dollar question, I guess, is, well, who is this king? Who is this king who will reign over all and will reign forever? And of course, I've already told you the answer. The answer is Jesus. This promise is pointing forward to God's true king, Jesus Christ. But maybe you're wondering, well, then why was there some strange details in verse 14 and 15? Why were there some details that don't seem to fit with Jesus? Did you catch it during the reading? This promise says about God's king that when he does wrong, God says, I will punish him. Now, you might be thinking, well, I thought Jesus never sinned. I thought Jesus never did any wrong. How could this be about Jesus? Well, this actually helps us to interpret biblical prophecy. This is a great question. See, biblical prophecies like this one work on two levels. There is the immediate fulfillment, and then there is the ultimate fulfillment. Now, the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy was Solomon, David's son Solomon. You can read all about him in 1 Kings. And he built an incredible temple for God. The throne of God was established through his line. And even though Solomon did some incredibly stupid things, like having 700 wives, worshipping idols, God did not remove the throne from him. And so Solomon and his sons were the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. But this prophecy goes beyond Solomon because, you see, Solomon died and is still dead. He was not God's forever king. And in fact, the Old Testament ends with us still waiting for this promised king. This king who would reign forever. And then, do you remember what the angel says to Mary when he announces the birth of Jesus to her? Maybe you've never noticed this in your Bible before. The angel says to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants, that's the nation of Israel, forever. The kingdom will never end. His kingdom will never end. See, Jesus is God's forever king. The one who would come to rescue us and to reign over us forever. Now, this is why the cross was such a shocking moment. Because at the cross, when Jesus died, it looked like God's promise had been broken. It looked like God's plan had failed. But then three days later... God raised Jesus from the grave. And God's promise was kept. His plan was fulfilled. And Jesus truly is God's forever king, the risen and reigning king. And this is why actually after Jesus was raised and ascended into heaven, the apostle Peter says in a sermon in Acts 2, I want to quote a few places in the New Testament tonight to help you see the connections. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 2. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. 
We've witnessed, we've seen the resurrected Jesus. Therefore, because Jesus has been raised, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, both King and Saviour. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. He is God's forever king. He will reign for all of eternity. Now this is God's response to David's good idea. This is the greater promise that God makes to David and to you and me. And this is a promise that has shaped our world, that continues to shape our world, and that will shape our future as well. This is an incredible promise. And it's actually one with which we can learn two important lessons about God. I want us to notice two things about God in this promise. The first is the humility of God. I don't know if you notice this, but in verses 4 to 7, when God first responds to, to David's idea to build him a house, God replies to David and says to him, David, I haven't had a house yet, and I'm not asking for one either. In fact, I've been living in a tent and I've been on the move with my people for a long time now because my people have been living in tents and they've been on the move for a long time. Now, do you see the humility of God? He is a God who dwells with his people. Do his people dwell in tents? Then so does he. Are his people on a long journey? Then he goes with them. He is the God who stoops to be near to his people. He is the God who dwells in tents with his people. He is the God who even dwells in a human body like his people. I mean, the Gospel of John says about Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That literally means God tabernacled among us. God pitched his tent among us. He is a God of humility. We also see that he is a God of grace, incredible grace. You see, what David wants to do here to build a temple for God, it was actually quite common in the ancient world. When a king would ascend to the throne, he would often, in response, build a temple for his God as a way of saying thank you and as a way of trying to secure that God's ongoing love, that ongoing blessing, ongoing favor. And so David's maybe starting to act like some other pagan kings. But let's be honest, we often think a little bit in this same way. I mean, we think, I have to do something great to earn God's love, to earn his favor, to secure his blessing. I have to prove myself to him. But we forget that the Bible describes God as the God of all grace. And this is why when David comes to God and says, God, I want to do something great for you. God replies and says to him, no, no, David, I will do something great for you. I will give you a house. I will send you a king who will reign forever. And this is the message of the Bible. This is the repeated teaching of the Bible. I mean, Christianity is not about you living a good life and then giving your record to God. It's about God sending his son, Jesus Christ, and he lives the perfect life, and then he offers his record to you as a gift. This is the message of the Bible again and again, and it's not just a New Testament teaching, because this is how God has always been, a God of all grace. 
And this is why I said that this story is essential for us to know how we can truly come to know God. Because if you want to know God, the true God, you don't have to prove yourself to him. You have to humble yourself before him and receive what he freely gives to you in Jesus. Do you see how good our God is? A God of humility and grace. I mean, this is incredible, life-changing, world-changing news. So what should our response be? Well, in the final scene, we see David's response. And in David's response, we learn what our response should be. Now, if you'll read these verses, David goes in, he sits before the Lord, and he overflows in a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. He marvels at the grace of God to him. In fact, I really hope that you'll go home and read verses 18 to 29, because David is almost breathless at the grace of God. He says in verse 18, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And then in verse 20, what more can David say to you? He is stunned, speechless at the grace of God. And friends, this is the proper response to the grace of God. It is to be utterly amazed. This is why the hymn that we sing that we love is called Amazing Grace and not Expected Grace. Assumed Grace. Let me ask you, are you amazed at God's grace to you? Are you stunned that God loves you and has forgiven you and has accepted you? If you're not, then it reveals that something is out of sync in your mind and in your heart because the distinguishing mark of the Christian is utter amazement at the grace of God. I mean, a Christian regularly says, Who am I, Lord? Who am I? Who am I that that you would set your love on me before the foundation of the world? That you knew me when I was still in my mother's womb? That every day of my life is written in your book? That you sent your only son into this world for me? That you revealed yourself to me? That you've saved me by your grace? That you've adopted me into your family? That you've poured out your Holy Spirit into my heart? That you're changing me? That you're transforming me? That you have given me hope for the future? That you will receive me into your presence. Who am I, Lord? Those words are regularly on the lips of a Christian, and so are the words, How great are you, my God? You see, David in verse 22, How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. There is no one like you, God. No one who has made such amazing promises and has been utterly and completely faithful to them. There's no one who has triumphed and defeated all of our enemies, evil, sin, and death. There's no one who has condescended into the mess of this world to reach out to us, to rescue us. There is no one like you, Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled yourself and became a servant to die for us, to rise again for us. There is no one like you, God. These two phrases are regularly on the lips of a Christian. This is the proper response to God's grace. Who am I, Lord? And there is no one like you. Let me just ask you, is this your response to the grace of God? Are you amazed at God's grace for you? Or or has it become a little bit ordinary to you? 
Well, of course God would do that. That's what he does. Are you amazed? You know, the amazing thing to me about this chapter is that God has kept his promises, which isn't that amazing, actually. I mean, God promised David that he would make his name great, and he has. God promised that he would make his name great, and he has. Here we are, thousands of years later, on the other side of the globe, and we are praising and worshipping this promise-making God because he is a promise-keeping God. He promised to send a king, and he's done that. He sent the Lord Jesus, and he died in our place for our sin, and he rose again so that we might know God. He is God's forever king. So the question I want to leave you with is, is he your king? Have you submitted to God's king? Have you entered into God's kingdom? Maybe you're a Christian, and I would ask you, have you submitted every area of your life to Jesus? You know, to be a Christian means to accept the word and the will of Jesus as final. Maybe there's an area of your life that you know you're holding back from him. You haven't submitted to him. He wants you good. He is a good king. Maybe you're not a Christian and you've never submitted yourself to God's king. God's invitation to you tonight is to turn from ruling your own life and to submit to the good and the easy rule of King Jesus. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's freedom found in submitting yourself to God's true king. The way into God's kingdom is open because God's king has come and he's made the way for us. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to tick all the boxes. You have to humble yourself before God and you have to receive the free gift that he gives in his king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are some of us here tonight and we have never received the free gift that you give us in Jesus. We've never bowed our knee before him and found the freedom and the life that is only in him. And Lord, some of us need tonight, we need to talk to the friend that, that we've come with. We need to reach out to someone. And maybe right now we just want to say to you, God, God, I want to enter into your forever kingdom. I want to receive what your forever king has done for me. Went to the cross to die for my sin so that I can be forgiven, made new, loved and adopted into your family, God. Well, there are others of us that need to submit another area of our life. You know what that is, we know what that is and we just want to lay that before you right now. And thank you, Jesus, that you are in the process of setting us free So we ask that you would set us free from the sin that clings to us to help us enjoy the life and the freedom that you give. You are God's true King, Jesus, and we humble ourselves before you tonight. We receive what you freely give, and we pray this in your good name. Amen. Church, would you stand?
to hear this blessing before we sing together. These words from Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.